Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh. Thank you for joining me tonight on Brighter Evening. Tonight, I wanted to talk about encryption. Uh, In particular, I'm thinking about end-to-end encryption. This is something I've seen in the news a lot recently over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, And and, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, One of the biggest reasons for that is that uh, there's a guy who goes by the name Moxie Marlinspike. It's not his real name, but it's what he's known as. And he created a standard of encryption that is very secure. Uh, It's been well tested and audited by the experts in the field, and he is one of the experts in the field. And uh, he implemented it on a messaging program called Signal, which is one of the most secure, uh, user-friendly messaging programs. Uh, it's, it's an app you get on your phone. Uh, and this, this system he came up for encryption has been re-implemented in WhatsApp. It's been implemented in um, some other messaging pro- products um, in, in different locations. Google had it as an option in one of their messaging programs. There's also a competing uh, messaging platform called Telegram that uh, it also uses some end-to-end encryption. And end-to-end encryption has become kind of a standard feature in these encryption, um, in these chat protocols. But we also see encryption used in a lot of other places. So I wanted to dig into this a little bit and talk a little bit about what encryption is. Um, If you go read Wikipedia pages, you'll learn a lot of the information that's here, but I think you'll find this description of it, this discussion of it, a little bit easier to digest, at least I hope so. Um, We're going to talk about some of the kind of effects of this stuff. So, um, going into why it's important. Why is encryption itself? Why do we encrypt things? What does that even mean? So, just a very simple definition of encryption. It's scrambling the communication, scrambling a message, so that it's hard to read. Um... Ideally, it's impossible to read unless you know the password or the code to, to decode it. Uh, and, and this is used for security of all kinds of communications, whether it's military secrets or police secrets or what have you, bank transactions or just people's you know, regular communications with one another. We use encryption to secure that so that people can't snoop easily. Um, part of this also goes back to the idea of verification. The idea that you are um, sending a message, you want to make sure that you can verify that you got the message from who you, you thought you did. So that's authentication. That's what that's called. And also verification that the message hasn't been changed in transit. So if I sent a, a letter to someone or an email today, right, and someone were to grab it on the way to its recipient and change the text, would that recipient know that I did that? Now, in the case of an email or something like that, that there may be some time to do that offline, but in the case of, say, a web transaction where you're working with your bank, that's something that would have to happen very quickly in real time. And so think about these different cases, right? There's, there's times where things are sitting around. There's times where they're, they're happening sort of as you're going. And these, um, these are kind of different approaches. Recently, uh, a senator said that technologies needed to get on with it and bend to the the will of Congress, uh, or that Congress will impose their will on them, which I take to mean they're going to find a way to solve this problem of 
secure encryption being available while still allowing law enforcement to access encrypted messages. And I will say that I think that the, the desire is a fair desire, but I will also say that it's a bit misguided. And despite the senator saying that it ain't complicated to him, it's not an easy matter. And I hope that we can go through and discuss all of this and in a way that will help you understand why it's maybe not as easy as some people may think. Um, it's, it's not just a matter of uh, Silicon Valley values being different than the values of different parts of the country. It's really a matter of this being a difficult thing to achieve mathematically. Because the basis for all this is math, and we have a certain knowledge of, of how things work that's been developed over the course of the last, say, 50 years, uh, maybe 70 years, you know, depending kind of how far back you want to go and, and how this analysis works. And a lot of research has gone into making something like that possible, but there hasn't been a lot of breakthroughs. I'm going to talk about how this works, and hopefully you'll understand why, why it's a difficult problem to solve. And difficult from the no one knows how to solve it standpoint, not difficult from the it's going to just take a lot of time, right? There's a difference between building a bridge and building a bridge to the moon, right? Some are, well, building a bridge is hard. It takes a lot of time, money, and effort, but with design and, and those resources, you can do it. Building a bridge to the moon is hard because we don't know how to do it, and if we did do it, we don't even know that it's possible. In fact, I'd say it's probably not possible to build a bridge to the moon because of the, the whole orbit situation, right? So, uh, in any discussion of encryption, um, the the people who are against secure encryption, and, and I know that's a bit of a loaded phrase, against this idea of encryption being kind of sacrosanct and unable to be accessed by people who are not party to the transaction, they're going to bring up two, two groups of bad guys. The first group is terrorists, right? There's always the threat of terrorists out there wanting to do harm. And the concern is that terrorists are going to use encrypted communications to plan things out and will have a harder time finding them and preventing them. Uh, the other group is child predators who will use these encrypted channels to uh, prey on children, pass around illicit images, that sort of thing. So these these two groups are kind of the boogeymen that always come up around encryption and what are we going to do if they can quote-unquote go dark, right? That's that's one of the terms law enforcement uses is this the going dark problem. So I'll just say that um, I don't necessarily find those arguments compelling. Obviously those are groups that are bad you know, we don't we don't want those people um, committing these crimes, committing these these bad acts. But it's it's kind of a baby at the bathwater sort of a situation, right? The the marginal gains by by providing this do not, in my opinion, warrant the cost that there's going to be to people's day to day security. So let's talk a little bit about the history of encryption. We'll dig into why I don't think that trade off matters, uh, or doesn't make sense rather, as, as we get through this. So the idea of secret messages are a very, very old idea. Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, the idea of a spy carrying a message is, you know, certainly certainly exists in the Bible, and, and I'm sure it's older than what's written in the Bible. But things changed when people became more literate, right? The more people are literate, the more just writing something down isn't a secret. So people try to find ways to do different types of codes. One of the earliest ones is the Caesar cipher, 
which was used in the time of Caesar, right? So this is in ancient Rome. And the concept of the Caesar cipher is pretty simple. It's something anyone could do. If you saw a Christmas story, Ralphie gets the special decoder ring from uh, little orphan Annie, right? From drinking enough Ovaltine. And of course the movie becomes a, uh, just another ad for Ovaltine. But the decoder ring is a perfect example of a Caesar cipher. The way it works is you assign a number to each uh, letter. So A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, and so on. And in a pure Caesar cipher, instead of a substitution cipher, which I think is what really was in this little orphan Annie thing, in a pure Caesar cipher, you just shift a few down. So if you say you're going to shift by 3, then you know A becomes you know 1, 2, 3, 4, D. Okay. Uh, so pretty simple. And then if you get to 26, and that's Z, and you have to shift toward, then you go back to A. And so you get this message that's incomprehensible because it's full of noise. And then you, if you know the key, you can go backwards. This is commonly used online. At least it used to be commonly used. I haven't seen it very many places in a long time, where they'll, they'll use a Caesar cipher with a rotation of 13, which is called ROT13, or Rotate13. And... The, the idea is, you know, they'll tell a joke or a riddle or something, and the punchline or the answer will be ROT13 so that you don't accidentally read it. It's not really meant to hide something because it's not good encryption. It's very easy, right? You just rotate it back. Uh, so that's that's the Caesar cipher. A substitution cipher is the same thing, but the way it works is more like that decoder ring where instead of just rotating, you just say, all right, A is 21, B is 17, C is 4, D is 5, and you just kind of randomly select them. And that's more secure than a ROT13 or a Caesar cipher because it's not just a matter of checking 26 different possible codes. You actually have a lot of different ways that you can permute, permute the, the different alphabet numbers and you'll get to different things. The problem is, in English, the letter E is really common, the letter Q is not so common, Z is really uncommon, and you usually have a Q followed by a U. So if you know all those things, you can statistically figure out what's what. And it's not hard to do that automatically. If you get you know, a few hundred words written, you're almost guaranteed to get the statistical breakdown that you'd expect, and you can automatically go from... Uh, you know, whatever the encoded text is, the cipher text into plain text, right, into what the original message was. So these are old old ways of encryption, old ciphers. They're not very secure, certainly not by modern standards, um, but they're at least easy to understand. Uh, there's also code words and numeric substitutions. So, you know, I've definitely seen like, um, say from the 1700s, sort of revolutionary era type stuff where people would write these letters and they would say, I've spoken with number 10 and he said that number 77. And of course, if you don't know what the code numbers mean, you don't know who number 10 is, you don't know what number 77 is, those messages don't mean anything. So the the code book is good, but it, it has a fatal flaw as well, which is if you observe enough messages, you might be able to figure out that every time he says number 10 is going to be somewhere, Alexander Hamilton is there. Well, Alexander Hamilton must be number 10. So it doesn't maintain its security well over time if you've got someone who can kind of see what's going on. Um, also, if the code book ever gets leaked, then you're in big trouble. 
I I watched a TV show a long time ago about some criminal organization, and they had a standard dictionary that all the members of the organization had. And so to communicate, they'd call up and they're like, all right, here's our order number. It's part 152371, and that would be directions for how to get to, you know, page 352, and then you'd go 37 would be the, you know, 37th word, column, whatever, and then they'd write down what that word was. And that's how they would send their secret messages. Um, again, if you've got the code book, it's very easy to do. If you don't have the code book, it's maybe a little more difficult. But again, this isn't what we'd consider a very secure method. And that brings us into some of the concepts of modern encryption. So modern encryption, um, we make a, a very strong distinction that there's this concept of security through obscurity. The fact that something's secure because you don't know about it. And uh, it's it's a very common thing for people who don't really um, study this a lot, aren't very familiar with the way modern security and encryption work, information security. They think, well, if I've got a secret way of encrypting things and other people don't know it, it'll be secure because no one else knows how to run my run my algorithm, run my my stuff, and 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 do this encoding and decoding. That may be true, but it's unlikely for a lot of reasons. One. Uh, if you haven't studied this stuff, it's very unlikely you'll come up with a new idea. Because a lot of the ideas that you might come up with that work in two ways other people have come up with. And so it may be something that's well known, you just don't know the name of it. It's also very likely that because encryption is hard to do well, you'll make a mistake. Your method of encrypting and decrypting may not be as secret as you think. And, and so all these things kind of work together to give you something that gives you maybe more of the illusion of security than actual security. Because what we're talking about is keeping a message private. So I kind of like in the idea of security through obscurity, this idea that if you don't know how it works, you can't get in, to uh, an old car I, I once had. Uh, in this car, the a key had broken off in the ignition. So all you needed to do was push down the clutch and turn the ignition. The starter would turn over didn't look like there was a key there but it, there was and we had other another key so you could unlock the doors but uh, one of the windows in the back was broken so if you took your hand and you pushed it on the back window you could push it down and then you could reach the front unlock the door get in and start the car so while we had keys and we used them to lock and unlock the car they were unnecessary so the car was secure through obscurity it seemed like a regular car with regular security. However, if you if you knew the trick or you were you know bothered to just push on the windows, you'd find out, hey, one of these windows can go down. And then you get in and you say, well, I've got to hotwire the car. I don't know how to do that. But maybe you, you flick the, the ignition and the car starts up, right? That's what it's like trying to build security by keeping the method secret. So that's not what we try to do today. That's not what people's goal is with security. People's goals with security is to make it so secure that if you know exactly how the security works, you can't decode the message unless you have the key to that message, whatever that is. So that's that's the goal. So we're going to start talking about one of the um, most absolute most secure methods of encrypting something, and it's actually pretty similar to that code book idea, right? If I've got this code book and you've got the code book, and we only use numbers from the code book that's pretty secure. However, you can take that one step further and make it something that is very secure. And that is called a one-time pad. 
So the idea of a one-time pad is that I've got something like a codebook, kind of a digital codebook, some kind of list of numbers, and I do some operation between that list of numbers and the numbers that represent my message, right? And again, we could do something simple like A is 1, B is 2, or more likely on computers you'd use the ASCII codes, which also have you know spaces and punctuation marks and some other stuff like that. So we, we take those and we do some operation with them to create a new message. And now the one-time pad, it's going to be completely random. You know, something like, you know, take a bunch of ping pong balls like they do in the lottery and, and pull out the numbers. And then I take, I'd say I have a sheet with these numbers on it. Now we do this electronically, obviously, today. But I could do it with a sheet of paper where I have these numbers. And I give you one sheet of paper and I have one sheet of paper. And as soon as you use that sheet of paper to encode a message, you burn it. You throw it away. You eat it. You do something. I get that same message. I use the decode. Then I shred the message. I shred the paper. I burn it. I, I, I do the same thing, right? So we've only used this codebook one time, and we're the only two people in the world who have it. If you do that for your encryption, it is absolutely secure. Assuming that you're not doing some silly transformation between it that's not at all secure, like you're just you know, using one number and doing a Caesar cipher on it or something. You're actually doing this for each letter in your message. As long as you do that, a one-time pad is very, very secure. So I've been alluding to how digital methods of encryption work. Um, and one key thing to understand is that for a computer, everything is a number. The numbers might be really, really, really huge, incomprehensibly huge, but everything is a number. So when we talk about you know, individual letters. There are some number generally in English between, you know, 32 and 96 or something like that. If you're talking about other numbers and other other letters and other languages, they might be uh, larger numbers because of how they laid things out in uh, in Unicode. Emojis count and that same kind of thing. There's a certain number that represents each emoji. Um, if you're talking about images, it's the same kind of thing. Only it's just a whole big old number. If you want to look at it that way, or a sequence of numbers, if you want to look at it that way, that represent different parts of the image. Video files are just a bunch of images strung together, maybe with some cool math to make them a lot smaller. Um, but everything is a number, and so when we talk about doing mathematical operations, if I have some number and I can combine it in some way with a different number to come out with a new number, right, that's kind of how encryption works, then, you know, it's not too bad. Um, you know, we have the option to do that. And any number can be written in binary, right? So everything in the computer is a number, and I can write any number in binary. Now, I'm not going to go through an explanation of the different ways you can store things in binary, and it's, it's something you can look up online. But it's easy enough to just make the statement. I think anyone would believe it, that if you give me any number, say an integer, you know, the number 6, it's easy enough to convert that into a binary number. We all know computers are good at that stuff. So, everything in the computer is stored as a binary number, a string of ones and zeros, and that's actually really cool for encryption. Um, and we're going to talk about the first kind of digital encryption thing that's out there that you should understand. And it's not actually specific to encryption, but it's used a lot of places uh, it, for encryption, right? If you if you crack open the hood and see like how does this work, this factors in in a lot of places, and it's called XOR or exclusive OR. The way to understand XOR is that um, when you ask 
a question and someone answers uh, an, an either or question, that's an exclusive or. Right? So if I ask you a question, would you like to go to the movies or would you like to eat? You probably will understand that as would you like to go either to the movies or to eat? You can pick one of them because we only have time to do one. That's an exclusive or. There's also an inclusive or where you could answer yes. Would you like to go to the movies or eat? Yeah, both, right? Um, and if you start thinking about how those would map out in binary in the binary sense, a binary number is true or false, a one or a zero. A one is true, a zero is false. And so in an exclusive or, if I have a a zero and a zero, a false and a false, well, that's clearly false. And if I give you two ones, that's also considered false, right? If I give you two trues, that's false because you didn't pick one or the other. If I give you a true and a false or a false and a true, then you picked one or the other. So that's considered true. Now, I know that's kind of hard to keep in your mind and, and you're just hearing it, but exclusive war has this cool property where if I give you a one, uh, say a one and a zero, and I ex exclusive or them together, and then I take the one and I exclusive or it again, it flips back. So if I, t in other words, I'll get a one out, uh, or I'll get a zero out if I use two ones and a, and a zero, right? I, I know this is, again, hard to hear and, and comprehend, but uh, if you see it written out, it's pretty simple. The idea is, if I give you a number, and you run the exclusive or, it's each bit from that number with a different number, and then I put the original number in again, an exclusive or that, we'll get out that second number. Okay, so it, it's a method to take combine two numbers in a way that's reversible. So you have one number that represents the message, one that, say, represents your one-time pad. So you mix those together with exclusive or, you get some other number that's unrelated, and then you run exclusive or again against your one-time pad, and you'll get the original message out. So that's cool. If we have a way to generate a secure stream of random numbers, now we have a way to encrypt. Is that exactly how it's done? No, not everywhere, because, you know, encryption is complicated. There's a lot you have to do to get it right. And the more you study it, the more you realize that it's a very difficult field. Um, so if you understand that, we can talk about symmetric encryption, hashes, and all these different things. Symmetric encryption is a very simple concept. The idea is that you have a password and I have a password, and if they're the same password, you can decode my message. That's the way I think most people expect encryption to work, and it, it does work that way at some point in any encrypted transaction, or I'd say almost any encrypted transaction. Um, so we could just leave it at that. There's a whole bunch of ways to do it. AES is the most common symmetric encryption standard used today. Um, DES and triple DES were, were used previously, um, but they're not secure enough for today. AES should be secure enough for as far as we can imagine in the future. The even doing millions and millions of checks per second, you're still going to be trying to decode an AES message with a you know full 256-bit key or whatever for beyond the lifetime of the universe, right? We're we're into that sort of territory with the complexity of the encoding that we're using. So it's pretty amazing. Um, hashes. So a hash. It's a one-way function, so it's not reversible. So it's kind of a one-way encryption. 
And the idea is that you take a long message and create a short version that doesn't resemble it. It's actually very different. And if you make a small change in the original message, it makes a large change in the output. So you might take a whole paragraph and turn it into, you know, 16 letters and numbers or 64 letters and numbers, something like that, some shorter version of it. And it's unique. So if I put past that text to it again, I get the same thing. Um, the reason those are important is because that allows meth message verification. So if I send you a message with the hash, as long as you know that the hash is correct, then you know that the message is correct. And there's some tricks you can do to make that happen, which we'll talk about in a second. Next concept is cryptographically secure random number generators. CSPRNG. It's, it's just a big mouthful to say. But the idea is that you have a way to generate random numbers that is either truly random or has really good properties that make it as good as truly random. The thing that all these systems need is some starting data that's random. Once you go from that random starting data, it can just continue to produce a stream of numbers that are as good as if you pulled them out of one of those ping pong ball machines. Okay, so the reason we need those is to get randomized data that we can use for like encryption keys, one-time pads, and stuff like that. That takes us to public key encryption. Alright, so this is the next big concept to understand. And the math of this isn't necessarily super hard to understand, but it's also not super straightforward. Um, but the general idea is easy to understand. You have a public key and you have a private key. Public key encryption. Um, the public key is a key you can give the world. You can put it on your website, you can put it anywhere. And if someone uses that public key, they can't, they can encode a message for you, but they can't decode the message. You have the private key, so if the message is encoded for you, you can decode it using your private key. Um, this can also be used with signatures, so if this is a mix of a hash and the public and private keys being used a special way, um, and the special way is all handled by software. You know, you, you as a user will just you know, right-click and say, sign this message or something like that. Or it'll happen automatically as part of the, the connection that you're making. That's typically how it is in most consumer applications. It, this stuff happens behind the scenes for you to ensure that you have a secure connection. But the signature just says, I'm going to take a hash of this message, and I'm going to encrypt it in a certain way so that you can validate that I have the private key. Um, a lot of public key encryption, although not all of it, is based on the idea of prime numbers and composite numbers. So you'll pick two super huge prime numbers, and by you I mean your computer or your phone, and then they'll multiply them together to create this huge composite number, and you publish the composite number, and you keep the two prime numbers. And you might say, well, how is that at all secure? Well, it turns out that prime factorization, that thing you did in third grade or seventh grade or whatever it is, is actually really hard to do. It's not, it wasn't just you. It was hard, it's hard for everyone. It's hard for computers. It's easy enough to do prime factorization for numbers we've already kind of done it for. We already know that these are the prime numbers. But once you start getting into really big numbers, we don't even have a complete list of prime numbers. But we don't, we don't know when the next prime number is going to pop up when we start going through. And so they do these kind of statistical checks for whether or not a number's prime it gets to be really hard to figure out where the prime numbers are and to to break apart two prime numbers into their a composite number into its two source prime numbers if there's only the two. And so that's that's the thing that makes 
some of them work. There are others that are based on the math to draw an ellipse or something like that. Um, and that's that's a little bit different. Um, RSA was the first one, and that's why prime numbers are so prominent when you read about this. But like I said, there are some that aren't. So public key encryption is really cool. Because if you can trust that you have someone's public key, you can establish an encrypted uh, conversation with them, an encrypted exchange, without first sharing a key, without first sharing some data that only you two have. That's really, really important. But we can take that a step further. If we're, let's say, in a room, and you and I want to have a conversation, but we know someone else is maybe listening in the room, we could still come up with a shared secret that the two of us share that no one else knows. It sounds like magic, right? Um, this is called the Diffie-Hellman key exchange. And um, of course, it's named after the, the authors, Diffie and Hellman, the guys who figured this out. They based their work on Merkel and uh, another guy. And so uh, I think it was Diffie said that he wanted Merkel also to be recognized in this. But it's known if you look online as the Diffie-Hellman key exchange. And like I said, it allows you to create a shared secret, even if someone's listening in. As long as you know you're talking to the person you think you are, you can come up with a shared secret that someone who's listening to the entire exchange can't figure out. Um, and it's based on doing some math using some remainders. Um, the, the basic way that it works is you take their number and you raise it to a certain power that you have and they take your number that you give and give it to a certain power and then you share some numbers over the pub in this public um, communications channel and because you have a secret and they have a secret and you do math using remainders um, you're able to figure out that you've got this shared secret that no one else has. Um, there are some other key exchanges that do a similar job, but the Diffie-Hellman one is the most common. Um, the cool thing is, if you take this key exchange where you generate a shared secret, and you do it over a channel that probably is private, but might, might not be, you do have the problem of there being a man-in-the-middle attack, right? Where you think you're talking to the person you want to, but someone's in the middle. Well, if you add in public key encryption to that, now you can actually sign the message and during the key exchange and so now as long as you have a public key for the other person that you can trust you can be sure you're talking to the person you think you are and that that gives you a way to generate a shared secret from the from the get-go and you can even take this idea one step further you can do this key exchange not just the beginning of the conversation you can do it at various points during the conversation and so that way if someone figures out the secret key that you came up with they won't be able to figure out the next secret key you came up with. That's called perfect forward security. So if they break one chunk of your message that, you know, during this back and forth that you're doing with the other other user, you know, your computer's doing it some other computer, they won't they won't get the keys of the kingdom. They'll only get one segment, which is a really important thing. So right now, if you've been following along, you actually understand a lot of a lot of the stuff about encryption that you would learn in a you know, college computer science class. Um, they, they'd go a little bit more into the math, obviously, but these are the basics, right? These are the things that if you wanted to deal with encryption in a safe way beyond consumer applications, you'd want to know. Um, you don't need to know much more beyond this to kind of understand the behaviors of things. Uh, I do want to talk, now that you know this, about the strength of encryption. 
Okay, so I was talking earlier about DES, the Data Encryption Standard. It was the government, U.S. government data encryption standard for, I don't know, 20-some years, came out in the 70s, and it used 56-bit keys. Um, later standards bumped that to 64. 128 is very common, and now uh, 256 is pretty common. And now these are keys used in a symmetric cipher, right? Symmetric encryption. Asymmetric, asymmetric encryption, because it uses this uh, public key stuff that involves these large prime numbers, those keys tend to be a lot larger. So if you hear about like a 2000 or 4096 bit key or some crazy number like that, this is a different thing, okay? that This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about these like uh, 128 or 256 bit encryptions. But 256 bits is a tremendous amount. Like I said, even doing millions, millions, millions of computations per second, billions of computations per second, you still have until after the universe runs out of energy before you're going to solve this problem. And that's a bold claim. That's a really bold claim. How do I know that there's that much difficulty? Well, there may be some weakness, right? There may be some weakness that's found out in the future in the system I use for encryption. Some people talk about quantum computing and Shor's algorithm and all this stuff. Maybe that's a thing in the future. It may not be. There's certain encryption algorithms for which that's not a problem. But aside from some kind of weakness or some new technology that allows us to do something fundamentally different, if we're doing what we call traditional classical computation, what your computer, what your phone does when it's doing its stuff, it's, com com it's computing. We actually kind of understand this because when we talk about a key size, each bit in the key represents an on or an off, a one or a zero. Every time you add another one, it doubles the number of possible keys or possible states. So if you talk about 8-bit something, right, we talk about 8-bit games or whatever, that meant that the computer that was inside that game console was operating on 8 bits at once. It could deal with values between 0 and 255 and nothing else. Anything bigger than that, it had to sort of simulate bigger numbers. And you'll actually find that 255 maximum in a lot of odd places in games once you start looking for it. Right? Rad Racer for the Nintendo, when you're going full speed in that car, 255 miles an hour or kilometers an hour, depending on, I think, which model of the game you got. So we know this, right? Every time you add a bit, the number of possible keys doubles. If you have good random numbers, right, and we have ways to do that today, then you know the number of keys that are there. And 2 to the power of 256 is a gigantic number. It's it's over 100 digits long. It's It's massive, and it's really, really hard to think about numbers that are that large. But we can put it in, in the context of it will take forever. It is secure for your data. Um, as, as long as you're using well-known, well-tested, secure algorithms, which, you know, again, consumer software generally is. Not all of it. There's some, some questions around some of it. But if you're talking about what's going on in your web browser, right, very secure. And the only thing to worry about is broken encryption. Now, thinking about all this stuff, right, we have this idea of the, the Diffie-Hellman key exchange, right? This key exchange where you and I speak in public, so to speak, and we agree on a secret. That assumes two parties participate. 
You might have a malicious party that's trying to inject stuff in. You might have a man in the middle trying to be in the middle. You might have a, um, you know, an eavesdropper. But what you don't have is a third party in that conversation. There's no third party that gets to know this secret key, right? This shared secret you come up with. Public key encryption. We have a public key. We have a private key. There are two parties involved. That's the math we've developed, right? It's it's a prime and a and a, another prime, and that makes a composite, right? So that's where the two parts come from. Hashes and random number generators. Well, those are just hashes and random number generators. XOR is just a method for encoding. A lot, you know, a lot of these symmetric ciphers are just a method for encoding the data. But the infrastructure that allows you to take advantage of those ciphers without sharing secret passwords with everyone, it's public key encryption and it's this key exchange stuff. And so we're in a situation where there's only two people involved. The math isn't designed to have multiple people there. That's not to say there aren't options. There are. But they're not really great options. Um, if you've got multiple parties involved in something and you're using public key trans, uh, public key cryptography, one option is you generate a symmetric um, encryption key for symmetric encryption, right? So you've got some 256-bit code or something. And then you take all the private keys of all the people who need to be involved and you encrypt that key. And then with with this private key that everyone has, right? So everyone gets a copy of that that symmetric key. And then you use the symmetric key to encrypt the actual message. This is actually used in practice in some places. It does involve a lot of public key cryptography, which can be tricky. Um, I haven't really gone into the trust side of things, but being able to get a public key you can trust is kind of tricky. Um, and that that means that you know everyone who is a party to that transaction gets full access to the message. So we'll leave it at that, and we're going to come back to what I consider the problem to be with that. Um, another one would be multi-user keys. Um, that means that a given key belongs to more than one user. So this could be something along the idea of uh, key escrow, where um, when I generate a key, I send a copy of it to some known entity, and they keep a copy of it to do whatever they're going to do with, use it in the future. Um, there's actually another one, which is uh, Shamir's secret sharing scheme. So if you've heard of RSA, the company, uh, there's also the RSA algorithm. The S in RSA is Shamir. And uh, it's a really cool thing that is based on some math that's actually fairly reasonable to understand compared to a lot of the math and some of this stuff. And the idea is that you can have a secret that's shared among multiple people, and you can reveal it if some threshold number of people wants to reveal it. So uh, imagine that you have uh, some secret code to unlock the, the company vault. And you've got um, 10 officers in your company. And so you want to say that if a majority of the officers in the company decide they want to open the vault, then we'll allow the vault to be opened. So what SSSS does is it allows you to take that secret 
split it up into ten pieces, but you only need six of the ten to open the vault or to get the, the original secret back. And it's any six of the ten. So that's actually a pretty cool piece of technology. It does have limited functionality because, again, once that secret, once all those pieces are put in there, the secret is fully exposed. Okay, so those are options for multi-user. Like I said, there's not many, and they're not great. You might be thinking, well, what about that first one? What if we did some key escrow? What if we encrypted... What if we sent all, our, all of our keys to the government? Well, I don't. I, I think that one on its face would make plenty of people uncomfortable. But there's another one, right? What if we sign... We do our encryption with the person we're talking to, but we also have a special key for the government government's public key no one needs to have it you're not sending private keys anywhere which you know that's hard to do safely we're just we're just encrypting it to the government's public key and they can decrypt it when they want um, and you could you could certainly make arguments for the way the legal protections around this would have to work right it would have to go through court and you know a judge would have to sign off on a warrant etc so you could from a legal standpoint probably make this uh, reasonably well respecting of civil liberties but the the problem I have with that approach is the fact that you've now created this special key right the private key um, corresponding to the government public key right that you're encrypting to that is now incredibly valuable it has the potential to view and review and change every transaction happening on the internet so this this encryption key, this tiny little piece of data, is now worth like trillions of dollars. Let me tell you about fire keys. These are keys that are used in um, in elevators by fire departments. They have uh, special functionality that lets you do things with with the, the elevator in fire mode. You know, go to floors, hold on floors, hold the doors open, that kind of stuff and they can very easily be used to sort of bypass certain security features in the building because fire safety always trumps uh, physical security right we want to make sure people are safe these elevator keys are often specified in building codes and they're actually some fire keys to buildings that are um, for entry into the door so a lot of public buildings in certain jurisdictions you know offices and and restaurants and things like that will have a special box outside the fire department comes with their key to unlock it if you go read the building code in some jurisdictions that keys code is specified so you can go to a locksmith and say I need this blank with this code they won't know any better they'll think it's for your house they won't know what it's for they'll go ahead and grind it for you and there you go you've got a key you can go open any business in your jurisdiction in your county um, these are really easily attainable. Like I said, you can go to be go to the locksmith and get one, but if you do a little searching, and I mean very little searching online, you can find places that will sell these keys. They say they only sell them to people who are supposed to be authorized to have them, but you can also go on eBay and find people who will sell to anyone, right? Because again, these are just keys. They're they're physical keys, and they're they're really easy to figure out which ones you need. Now these keys require you to be on site. If you wanted to commit a crime with them, you'd have to go get one of these keys, go to the place, go in and commit your crime. If we're talking about this key escrow idea, right, I send I send a copy of my private key to the government through their, you know, 
or of my you know encryption something right some kind of key some kind of cipher piece uh, to to build the decode my message i send that to the government on their public key and they've got a private key well the private key is incredibly small right smaller than a floppy disk smaller than you know a sheet of paper printed out they're easy to replicate they're easy to replicate a billion times right you could fit millions of these on your hard drive if you wanted to very easily they're going to be specified somehow in a legal code and published if someone has one they can be used from anywhere and like I said this will be worth at least billions of dollars but more likely trillions of dollars because if you have it you'll be able to intercept any communication you want you'll be able to go in and hack banks you'll be able to go in and hack into schools you'll be able to hack into whoever you want because you'll be able to if you get a hold of this key watch the passwords get sent in real time over the network. To me, that's incredibly dangerous. Now you might say, the government's good at keeping secrets. We can trust them. The NSA has two missions. One is spying technologically on foreign powers. The other is keeping the United States government secrets secure. Those are its two missions. The NSA is a well-funded organization full of professionals. Um, if you go read when uh, the RSA standard was being released, it had a suggested design. And the, RS and the NSA said, actually, you need to change this one piece of it. It was called the S-Box. And then we'll authorize it for use. A lot of people thought, oh, this is the NSA, you know, spooks and stuff. They're weakening it. They have some method. And if they weaken it this way, it'll make it harder. It was over 10 years later when public cryptographic research figured out oh, they were making it significantly stronger because by making that change it's resistant to this attack against this, this encryption technology that no one else knew about at the time. Right? The NSA is very good at understanding cryptography and applying it well, keeping their secrets secret, and yet even the NSA makes mistakes. About a year ago, maybe a year and a half, a bunch of NSA tools for hacking were left on a server on the internet in public and they got exposed. That's not to mention things that we don't necessarily know where the NSA, but probably were, right? Leaks happen, mistakes happen. Leaks happen constantly in the political world. And you have to ask yourself if do you trust that everyone who would have access to that key would be able to say no to a check for $100 million? because the value is there to spend $100 million to acquire this this master key. Um, you know, we don't have a safe way to limit this. The keys are going to leak. And if you kind of hobble the technology so that it's easy enough for the government to break, well, you're, you're going to make other governments besides your own able to intercept and understand what you're doing much more easily. But besides that, this technology is very well known. It's published online in academic journals and everything. It's not hard to implement. You might make a few mistakes doing it. Maybe you'll be more vulnerable than you otherwise would be if, if you didn't make those mistakes, but you can go do it. The, this stuff's baked into CPUs, right? It's baked into the chips that run the computers. A lot of this stuff. So it wouldn't be hard for bad actors to create their own software 
that does have a secure version of this encryption that doesn't send a copy of everything to the government. Especially the people you really don't want having private communications, they will have it. So when I look at this on the balance, we're introducing a tremendous vulnerability into security of everyone's online life. And let's be honest, most people live their lives online today, right? You bank online, you shop online, you might buy your groceries online, you communicate online. You're giving a master key to all that to the, the government, to someone, and hoping that it stays secure. Is that a risk you want to take? The alternative is we keep letting things be secure. It does make dragnet surveillance harder. It does make it harder for them to run software that just automatically looks for people who are bad guys. Or, let's be honest, there have definitely been documented cases where government agents who have this sort of technology, they have this sort of access when some of this encryption wasn't there, abused it to look on there on the, into the life of a spouse or a family member or friend, someone they were curious about, right? That will get harder. But the big wins, they come from real police work. Law enforcement officers in the local, state, federal level, Interpol, other countries, are professionals. They have methods for investigating crimes, and they investigate them in a way that involves protecting our civil liberties, right? They get they get warrants. They build a case. They use logic and deduction, and they figure out who did the crime, why they did it, where they are, and then they use that to build their network. That's not going to change. The ratio of criminals to non-criminals isn't going to change with or without encryption. So if we have faith in our law enforcement agencies, we don't need to give a master key to all the communications that we use in our lives. Thank you for listening. My name is Josh. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brightervening.com.